rain, sleet, ice. You're still around. I love it. Stand for just a moment, would you? Now imagine being in that position for four hours listening to a Bible study. That was the experience during Nehemiah's day when Ezra the scribe stood himself and everybody stood from morning until noon as the word was read and then it says he gave the sense and caused the people to understand the meaning. He gave a Bible study while everybody stood and they stood and it says they gave attention. Now have a seat. That's a lot more comfortable doing that, isn't it? And you don't have to do it four hours. You just have to do it for one hour. And since you do have seats and we have a heated building with lights and it's less time than in Nehemiah and Ezra's day, we ask and expect full attention to be given to the Word of God. And so we ask that if you think you're going to leave before the end of the study, that during our prayer time you would get up and move toward the foyer where there are overflow televisions, you can move around and be unnoticed, and then others can give full attention to the reading of the Scriptures tonight. Tonight we're in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Let's turn there. In our overview of the Old Testament, we come to this chapter, one of the most important pivotal chapters of this new generation. And it's a long chapter. It's 49 verses. So it's like having a couple chapters. I figure if we can get through this, it's like going through two chapters. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight. We thank you, Father, that we're gathered together with a common purpose of learning to walk in your ways as we have just sung. Lord, we anticipate that you will teach us through what you've revealed in your word that we might cling to you, Lord. Father, I pray that all of us would have hearts that are open to receive. It is easy to come and sit and listen. It's another thing to have hearts that are open. And so, Lord, we pray that you would just now make us aware of your presence if we're not already. May it be a profound knowledge that you are with us and that this is also part of worship as we learn of you. And so, Father, we give you our bodies, our minds, and we ask, Lord, that you would govern this time. Govern your church, your flock. Feed us the bread of life. In Jesus' name, amen. You probably remember, I do, my parents giving me spiels. And uh, I remember my father would often look back to his childhood. Now when I was young, and every time he'd do that, I'm sure he noticed that we rolled our eyes. We could finish the message. I remember walking to school 45 miles in 10 feet of snow barefoot. Maybe not quite that dramatic, but they had stories like that. And they were trying to tell us, they were trying to equip us in our generation, for our life and the challenges that we would face based upon their own experiences. And of course, kids don't want to hear that stuff. And then the kids grow older, and the kids find themselves having kids saying the same things, and it's like a flashback. Oh, I remember how I acted the same way when my dad tried to tell me this. Moses is teaching a couple million kids what it was like back then at Mount Horeb. He's telling them what it was like when God parted the Red Sea and when they came across on dry land and came to the mountain that quaked and the giving of the law. And this is a new generation. They're on the plains of Moab. And Deuteronomy is essentially that, the speeches of Moses to the children of Israel. The instruction of Moses on the plains of Moab the speeches that he gives to this new generation coming into the land. And uh, just to review by way of the visual, the book of Deuteronomy takes place 
in one geographic location. The wandering is over. It's all history. It's all review. It's the oratory of Moses. As these kids, now grown up to be adults, are all gathered on the plains of Moab, east of the Dead Sea, they're about ready to enter the land of Israel. In front of them, if it was a clear day on Mount Horeb, they could look down, not Mount Horeb, on um, uh, the plains of Moab, um, Mount Nebo, thank you. You could see all the way into Jericho. The desert floor gave way to the green, lush oasis of Jericho, which would be the first city under Joshua that they would conquer as they left Moab. The new generation, like the old generation, knew what it was like to not have their own land but camp out for 40 years. I love camping. I wouldn't like it for 40 years. I have visited the uh, Bedouins who still live in this area. And this is how they live. They live in tents. They travel from place to place with their families, their goats, their horses, and many times their television sets. It's interesting. You go to uh, Bedouin villages today and you'll see like the most primitive living conditions. And then this huge television antenna coming from a tent. You know, just the, the basic necessities of life that they're living off of. We left off last week with the last verse of chapter 3, verse 29. So he stayed in the valley opposite Beth Peor. He's rehearsing the history of the previous generation to these new kids. Now, we said in our first study that Deuteronomy is a series of speeches that Moses gives. Chapters 1 through 4, and we're just about ready to finish that, is, is the first speech. He reviews the history of the nation. This is where we've come from. This is where we were. We were slaves. God delivered us. It took 40 years to get here. We wandered 38. We were at Horeb a little over a year. And altogether it was 40 years. And he's reviewing in the first speech, ending with chapter 4, the history of the nation. And the theme of this chapter, of this section, is what God has done for Israel in the past. This is the love of God. God loved you with a stubborn love and brought you to this place. Then beginning in chapter 5, we have the second speech, which is a review of the law. He sort of recaps or highlights the salient features of the covenant, the law that God gave to the children of Israel for them and for future generations. And the theme of these chapters is what God expects Israel to do in the present. Here's the covenant. This is your end of the deal. Obey the law. I love you. Demonstrate your love by keeping the covenant that I gave to you and to your fathers. The third speech is the blessings and the cursings. It's uh, a couple of chapters long, chapters 27 and 28. That's the third speech. And it's essentially what God will do for Israel in the future, providing that they keep their end of the bargain. Blessings, if they don't, cursings will prevail. And then finally, the fourth speech is the land covenant, the Palestinian covenant. This is the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, that is reviewed for them in chapters 29 and 30. And the theme is what God can do for Israel through His covenant. That's a key word in Hebrew, berith or bereth, the English transliteration. The covenant, the deal, this is how God relates to you by the covenant. And this is what you can expect for me to do for you and for future generations through the covenant. And then the final words of Moses before he dies in chapters 31 through 34. Now as Moses gives his first speech, he rehearses that God brought them to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. God said, you've been long enough at this place. Get out of here. So they left Mount Sinai. They went north to the entranceway, the gate of the land called Kadesh Barnea. And they sent out spies. And ten spies came back with a bad report. Two spies came back with a good report. The majority believed the bad report, which caused them to wander in this kind of terrain for 38 years. Not a pretty sight. You get really tired of this kind of lifestyle, and it wouldn't take long. And then Moses reviews for them, as we saw last week, the takeover of the lands east of the Dead Sea, the kings that lived there, Og, 
the king of Bashan that lived in the north, and the area of Gilead, the Arnon River in the south. Uh, Gilgal is where they crossed over into the land and went into Jericho. And these are basically the borders of the land and the tribes that settled east of the Jordan. If you can see in this picture in the distance is a view of Moab, Mount Nebo, where the children of Israel would be gathered looking over the Dead Sea and this land. Tonight we rehearse the children of Israel standing at Mount Sinai. The giving of the law, which he enters into in the second speech next week, the law itself. But here he's reminding them that God gave them the covenant at Mount Horeb. The Torah, the first five books of Moses, uh, the law, the covenant of the law in particular. And so that's it for the visuals. We'll get into our Bible study. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I command you. You shall not take anything from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God has destroyed from among you all the men who followed Baal Peor. But you held fast to the Lord your God and are alive today, every one of you. Surely I have taught you, and notice his description of the law, the statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. The rabbis said the law is the kernel and the core of national life. It is what Israel based their relationship to God on. God made a covenant with them at Sinai, a covenant which Jews to this day strive to keep, a covenant of the law. And Moses says here, God revealed this to me, commanded me, and I have commanded you with the statutes and the judgments. When God makes a covenant, God always keeps his end of the bargain. Some covenants are conditional. The law of Moses was conditional. If you do this, then I will do that. There are other covenants that are unconditional. The covenant of the land, the promised land that they were to occupy, was unconditional. God told the children of Israel, the reason I'm bringing you into this land is because I promised, I made a covenant to Abraham. God told Abraham that his descendants would be in Egypt for 400 years. And after that, after being there for a while, they would be oppressed by the enemy, but God would deliver them out, bring them with a strong hand into a new land. That was a covenant that God made with Abraham. And he told the children of Israel, I made a deal with Abe. That was a long time ago, but I still remember that deal, and I'm going to deliver you in spite of you. They complained. They were stubborn. They argued with God. And yet, after 40 years, after 38 years of discipline plus two years, here's a new generation, and they're about to enter the land. God did not say, because you rebelled against me, because you complained, because you argued, that's it. Every one of you is going to die. God said, no, the old generation will die. I'll raise up a new generation, but I'm still going to bring you into this land. Israel was stubborn. God was more stubborn in his love for them. Jonah found that out. Do you remember? Jonah was a stubborn prophet. God said, Jonah, go to Nineveh. What did he do? He bought a, a princess cruise ticket to Tarshish. Moses, or or uh, Jonah, I want you to go 500 miles northeast to Nineveh. I've got a ministry for you. I'm going to call you into the ministry. You know, most people go, oh, thank you, Lord. You've called me to the preaching ministry. Jonah goes 2,000 miles, or tries to, in the opposite direction. Rather than God writing the prophet off and selecting somebody else, which God would have the prerogative to do, being sovereign, 
God was stubborn in his love and wanted to give the prophet an attitude adjustment. He figured that a few days and nights in the belly of a great fish would be the trick. And after suffering, no doubt, from oxygen deprivation and the acetic acids and the great fish, he was vomited out on dry land. And this time when God said, go to Nineveh, Jonah did not go to Tarshish. He went directly to Nineveh. He learned. <laughs> I'll obey. He did it reluctantly, but he obeyed, and he found out that God stubbornly loved Jonah and wanted to use him in spite of himself and loved the Ninevites. And so typical of God, children of Israel, complaining, arguing, now a new generation. They're going to enter the land because God made a covenant, a promise with Abraham. Now God has made a promise to you. He's the author and the finisher of your faith. He that has begun a good work has promised to continue to perform it to the very end. And some of you feel sometimes like you're stranded. You've got a spiritual flat tire. The car is broken down. You're nowhere. You're going nowhere. God has forsaken you. That's not the heart of God. God doesn't deliver you out and then go, just kind of dangle the bait in front of your eyes. Well, I've begun a good work, but I'm not going to let you go any further. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is a beautiful, beautiful commentary by Moses on the plan of God. He said, God brought you out of Egypt that he might bring you in to this land. And God brought you out of sin. God brought you out of bondage. Not to make you stranded, but to bring you in to the full promise of a relationship with Jesus Christ. You say, oh, but... I've blown it. I failed. I've been disobedient. Join the club. God is still faithful even when you are not. And we're going to see tonight a beautiful, beautiful story of God anticipating the failure of the children of Israel in this chapter. And God saying, now I know you're going to blow it, but when you do blow it and you cry to me in that place, I'll bring you back. Beautiful story of God's healing of those who backslide. Notice again the heart of God in verse 1. He tells them to obey the law, listen to the statutes, the judgments. Why? That you may live. Why would he say that? Well, there was a whole generation who did not live, right? They died. A lot of them died. In fact, the whole generation died. And as we mentioned last week, if you tally up those who died, it would be an average of 85 funerals per day or seven every waking hour. The reminder that the wages of sin is death. Now God says, okay, new generation, clean slate. Do what God says, that you may live. This is not a threat. This is the heart of God. God wants you to live. God wants you to inherit the promises, inherit the land, so that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor shall you take anything from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Even in this primitive era of Judaism, we find here the doctrine of the word of God. God is saying, this is my word, this is my revelation, this is infallible, this is inerrant. Don't mess with it. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. Now, somebody might say, well, what about Christianity? It's a whole New Testament. If God said don't add to it, isn't Christianity in the New Testament a violation of this principle? Not at all. Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. In the Old Testament, you have many promises unfulfilled. In the New Testament, you have many fulfilled promises of the Old Testament predictions. He came to fulfill the covenant, fulfill the law. So don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. How can we do that today? Well, there's a number of ways that people add and subtract from the Bible. Number one, assumptions. 
As we mentioned this morning, rather than reading the revelation of God and letting the Bible speak for itself, people assume. They say, well, you know, I sort of picture God as, and they fill in the blank, and so many people have their own version of God. It's not what God said of himself. It's one they made up. It's the one they like. It's the one that suits their personal taste. Another way people can add or subtract is tradition. We get so used to a system, a denominational system even, and we elevate sometimes tradition above the Word of God. We can add to the Word of God by tradition. The Pharisees did that. They came to the disciples one day. The disciples were eating food and they said, Jesus, why do your disciples transgress the law, the commandments, the traditions of the fathers? They don't eat with their hands properly washed. Jesus said, why do you transgress the word of God by your tradition? They elevated tradition over scripture. That's one way to add or take away, to elevate tradition over scripture. Another way is accommodation. Well, that's what the world likes. This is the standard of the world. And if I want to be hep and have the world like me, I've got to kind of not believe in this and I've got to believe in what they believe in. And so you see many churches today. They call themselves crystal churches, worshiping the new age in the name of Christ, or homosexual churches, accommodating to the spirit of the age and throwing out the revelation of God because it fits with either their lifestyle or what is popular in society. God says, don't add, don't mess, don't subtract. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God has destroyed from among you all the men who followed Baal of Peor, but you held fast to the Lord your God and are alive today, every one of you. Now, what is he referring to? He's referring to that weird occasion when Balak hired the prophet Balaam, that prophet from Mesopotamia. And he brought Balaam down to curse the children of Israel from several vantage points. And so there is the prophet Balaam looking out over the camp of Israel, hired by Balak to curse the children of Israel. Rather, God foils the plans and he gives some of the most beautiful blessings of Israel. In fact, a prediction of the Messiah is also in his message. And he could not curse the children of Israel. And of course, Balak was angry. And so what Balaam does is, because he is greedy for money, he says, Balak, I cannot curse what God has blessed. There is nothing that can be brought in terms of a curse or accusation against the people of God, but I'll tell you what you can do where they can curse themselves and God will be forced to judge them. Take some of your beautiful women, the women of Moab, and have them seduce the men of Israel. And when they are involved in sexual worship, which was part of their worship system, when they're seduced by them and they fall into the sex act, they can bring out their little idols. And bringing that kind of activity, that immorality, as well as paganism by this act into the camp of Israel, God will be forced to judge them. He understood how the system worked. Now remember in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, the seven letters to the seven churches, Jesus writes a letter to the church at Pergamos. He, he indicts them because he said, you have those there that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and get involved in sexual immorality. That kind of doctrine of Balaam persisted even in the church at Pergamos. The idea is loosening up on your stand before God, loosening up on your morals, saying, I'm married to God, but at the same time, having an affair with the things of this world. The early church called it antinomianism, which means against the law, living with license, living any way you want to, 
and saying, oh, I'm under grace. I'm under grace. I can live with this girl and have sex before marriage because I'm still a Christian. I'm under grace. I can do whatever I want. I can say that I'm a Christian, but I can live any way I please. Essentially, that's the doctrine of Balaam. Now, Moses says, you saw what happened at Baal Peor. Your eyes saw it. Many of them died. They are still alive, every one of you. Surely I have taught you the statutes, judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore, be careful to observe them. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who say, uh, excuse me, who will hear all of these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it? I love that. If God is near to them at that time in their history, compare that to now. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, as John said. God was near back then. You could call upon the name of God, anyone in that covenant relationship. As the psalmist said, God is near to those who call upon him. How much more is God made near to us? God came in human flesh in the form of Jesus Christ, Israel's Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so intimacy with God is something that should mark us. As the Lord our God is to us for whatever reason we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? Only take heed to yourselves and diligently keep yourself lest you forget the things your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life and teach them to your children and your grandchildren. The tendency I find in myself is to forget what God has done. Not that it's out of my memory. It's just not close at hand. It's still not making the impression that it should. You know, you sometimes see a person who was walking so close with the Lord. They have such a powerful testimony. And then you look at them after a period of time, and it's like they've, they've forgotten. And you say, don't you remember how God powerfully worked and moved in your life? This is one of the reasons why Peter, in his epistle, said, Even though you already know these things and are established in them, as long as I have this body of flesh, I'm going to constantly remind you of them. Have you ever read a scripture? You knew it. You read it. You had it underlined. But you read it again. You think, ooh, I've forgotten that truth. And now God is reminding you of it. And they're to rehearse what God has done. They're to rehearse the law because it is human nature. It's our tendency to forget what God has done. Not only are they to remember it, to rehearse it, they're to teach their children. And this is one of the grand themes of Deuteronomy. There is an emphasis on parents and grandparents passing on spiritual legacy to their kids. Teach them diligently to your children. It's mentioned again in chapter 6. It'll be mentioned again in chapter 8. What God has done in your life, pass it on to your children. It was Socrates who marveled, he said, that so many parents were so careful in training their own animals, their colts, but they were not diligent in training their own children. In other words, they placed work above family. It's the thrill of a parent to instruct their children in the ways of God. I remember the afternoon I was driving with my son, and he was asking me questions, and I was telling him about the Bible and about receiving Christ. And he said, Dad, have I ever received Christ? And then he said, Dad, I want to receive Christ. I want to make him my Lord and my Savior. 
I said, and I told him, you know, about doing that. He goes, I want to do it right now. I said, you want to do it right now, Nate? I said, yeah. He said, yeah. So I pulled over to the shoulder. And he prayed right there. Oh, man, it was like, what a rush. What a thrill. And every time he asks me about spiritual things or a door is open and I get to just sort of walk into it and share, oh, man, it's awesome. Teach diligently your children and your grandchildren. The Scripture says that children are a heritage from God. And think about that next time you think, you know, these kids are getting on my nerves. And you want to tell your husband, you know what your daughter or your son did today? And you want to sort of pass the ownership off. Or you think, why do we have so many kids? It's a heritage. Proverbs tells us, train up a child in the way that he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. It's a beautiful word to train, to teach. It's the Hebrew word tanach. No, hanach. Tanach is the Old Testament. Hanach, to train. It means to put something into the mouth. To, a, to show them what something tastes like. It was used by many Semitic people of taking date honey, putting it on their finger, and sticking it in their kid's mouth to develop the sucking reflex. Stimulate their taste, in other words, by giving them spiritual truth and give them a hunger and a thirst after spiritual things. Teach your children and your grandchildren, especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb, especially the commandments, the covenant of the law at Sinai. Horeb is the name for the general area where Mount Sinai was in the southern Sinai. When the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, and I will let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, that they may teach their children. There it is again. And that theme will be repeated over and over again. It is not the job of Christian schools nor churches. It is the job of parents to train their children in spiritual matters. Don't, you know, slough it off and say, oh, it's their responsibility. No, it's our responsibility. It's our privilege. Now let me dispel the myth of the perfect parent. There's no such thing. By the time the parent is experienced, he's unemployed. Once you finally figure it out, they're grown. You can't be a perfect parent, but you can be a good parent. Scripture has a lot to say about living the life as well as training and teaching verbally the words. I remember when I was a kid, I used to look at my parents and think, you know, they've got such an easy life. I get up in the morning and I've got chores and I'm the one that receives all the commands and they give all the orders. I used to think, I can't wait till I'm a parent. Kids do all the work, parents give all the advice. And then I became a parent. I remember the first week that I was a dad, I called my mom and dad. I said, thank you. Thank you for being my parent, for putting up with me. I realized, especially as my son grew, and I've only got one son. We've wanted to have more, but God has just blessed us with one. It's a challenge. And I remember I used to say, you know, I'd look at my dad and say, no, when I'm a dad, I'm going to do things different. I'm not going to be like that, right? Then all of a sudden you wake up and you find yourself exactly like that. It's not that easy. But with God's help, we can give the most important things to our children, teach their children. Now, verse 10 sort of introduces where he's going in chapter 5. He's going to start going over the law that was given at Horeb. And so these, these are the commands God gave, especially you are to teach your children and obey what God told you, not just these 40 years, but especially the covenant at Horeb at Mount Sinai. In Exodus when they are brought before Mount Sinai, it says that the mountain is quaking and lightning is going off and the children of Israel tell, uh, tell Moses, Moses, you go. You go and find out whatever God wants and whatever God wants, tell us. And whatever God tells us to do, we'll do it. 
Now, that was really a rash statement, right? Because they never really completely did it. Whatever God tells you to do, we'll do it. Turn with me over to chapter 5 for just a moment. Verse 27, I'm sort of cheating. I'm going ahead. He, in chapter 5, is recounting this whole experience. You go near, they say, and hear all that the Lord our God may say, and tell us all that the Lord our God says to you. And we will hear it and do it. Then the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you, and they are right in all that they have spoken. But listen to this. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments that I might be well with them and with their children forever. God sees their heart and he says, oh, I love, I love that attitude. Whatever God says, we'll do it. God said, oh, if they only had a heart to be able to do what they said they would do. They never really did. They were kicked out of the land because they failed to keep the covenant. They were in captivity 70 years. They failed. But here we see the law in its essence. Romans chapter 3 says, No flesh shall be justified in God's sight by the law. Because the law shows our failure. Paul in Galatians 3 says, The law served as a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. The word he used is paedagogos. The law is our paedagogos. It's our schoolmaster, which was a slave hired in ancient times to train kids, to get the kids dressed, to lead the kids to school. It would train the children in the elementary aspects of living until they were old enough to be led to school. And when they came of age, that slave's job, the job of the Pythagogos, was over. They've done what they were called to do. That's what the law does. You look at the law, you say, I, I've broken that commandment, that commandment, that commandment, all of them, either outwardly or in my heart. But I'm led to Christ, and in the new covenant, we're promised a new heart to keep the law. In Christ. He summed up the law. Here's the law. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And it's all really kept in Christ, what he has done. He lived the perfect life. And then he died the substitutionary death. And the law is fulfilled in him. Well, anyway, let's go back to chapter 4. Verse 12, the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. You only heard a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might observe them in the land which you cross over to possess. Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of a male or female, the likeness of any beast, that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. Twice God mentions a very, very important tenet of Judaism. You saw no form. I didn't appear to you in a form, but you heard the voice. And here's the word. So whatever you do, he says, don't make an image to worship me with. Now that's the second commandment, right? The first commandment is that we worship only God, that it's exclusive worship. We can't worship God plus Krishna, God plus the gods of Hinduism or the Greek pantheon or whatever. We worship God exclusively, only the Lord God. The second commandment is a warning against worshiping the true God in a false way by images. Don't construct an image. You saw no form. The strict Jews from the time of Moses onward believed 
in that very, very wholeheartedly. They had no images at all. They protested. Remember when we studied the Gospel of John, when even Pontius Pilate put ensigns on the shields of the Roman army that was a depiction of Caesar in Rome. They said, that's an image. And it's around the temple area. And it violates the commandment. God said, you shall have no image when you worship. Now, some people wonder, because of this commandment, is it okay to have Christian art, a picture of Jesus, a statue, any kind of depiction of spiritual things? I don't think art is really the question. If it was, then God violated his own commandment in the tabernacle when he had cherub, cherubim, angels, over the mercy seat. He had beautiful works of art, almond leaves, pomegranates on the high priest's garments, beautiful engravings and embroideries in the hangings around the tabernacle, beautiful works of art, beautiful depictions of things. The idea is that you're not to use, like pagans, statues that would remind you of some aspect of God to aid you in worship. Let me give you a little background of how the pagans did it. Pagans made depictions of animals, birds, of fish, or odd, grotesque kind of figures, and, and they dedicated the image that they made to the God that they were worshiping. They believed that whenever you dedicate the image, the spirit of the God inhabits the image, and that the God is able to sense, feel, and experience whatever happens to that image. So in Egypt and in Mesopotamia, they would often dress up the little gods or put food offerings in front of the gods or goddesses. They still do it in India today with Shiva and the god Kali. And they believe that the god will receive energy and strength and nourishment from the food that is placed there. There was even um, an article in the uh, Indian newspapers of these gods and goddesses where food was put in front of the milk and it was kind of miraculously sopped up by the image as if the image was saying, thank you very much. I like what you gave me. So they believe that whatever you, however you treat this image in your worship, it's like that's how you treat the God. So God forbid that you will have no image, as it says here, when you worship like the pagans would do. Now think about it. Whenever you construct an image to help you worship, and I remember growing up in the particular church, the denomination that I was in, there were things around the house. There were statues and depictions. And my parents and those in the church would tell me the reason you have them is that it reminds you of God. Well, if you need an image to remind you of God, it shows that you've lost the consciousness of God. And it shows that you're trying to regain that consciousness desperately trying to regain the consciousness because you need a reminder. Listen, if you're in love with God and you walk with Him intimately, you don't need anything to remind you. It's not like you walk through the house, see a statue, go, oh, right, God exists. I forgot all about Him. I need to worship Him. Images also point to a fundamental truth. We have a hard time with relating with anyone who's invisible. Remember H.G. Wells, The Invisible Man, how science gave this guy the ability to be invisible, and it seemed like a blessing, but it was really a curse. How can you trust someone who's invisible? Where is he? You don't know. How do you relate to someone you don't see? Even Moses had that problem. He said, oh, Lord, I have one request. Show me your glory. I want to see your face. God says, if you do, you'll die. No one can see my face and live. We all long to see God. That's deep at the core, and that's probably why we construct images. But images of God dishonor God. I think it's important to realize that. The very essence of God is that He is unlimited. Whenever you cast a picture or a statue, you've just limited it, God. You've gone against the very essence of God. He transcends 
He is unlimited. It's really a dishonor. Think what Aaron did. He constructed a calf or a bull. And the god of, the kind of the great god of Egypt was a bull called Apis the Bull, the great god of Egypt. Aaron constructed a golden calf as if to say, look how strong our god is. Stronger than Apis the Bull. Stronger than Heka, the frog god of Egypt. Our God delivered us out with strength and with power as depicted by this bull. And so he held it up and he said to the children of Israel, This God delivered you from the bondage of the Egyptians. The strong God. Now while the calf was a depiction of God's strength, it said nothing about his other attributes, his moral character, his love. It limited God. And thus it dishonored God. All of the images on earth, all of the depictions, all of the art cannot adequately express the nature of God. It, by its very nature, is limited. God, by his very essence, is unlimited. Secondly, images would then mislead men and women in worship. Whatever you believe will determine how you behave. If you picture your God as that, that's how you will act toward the God. Those that focus on just the crucifixion, the crucifix, Jesus dying on the cross, the death of Jesus Christ, while that's a valid depiction, often that's all they think about and they worship with great suffering, crawling on their knees, bloodying up their bodies and suffering, thinking this is acceptable to God. The image has misled them in their worship. I have no qualms against what a crucifix depicts, my issue is what it fails to depict. The resurrected Christ, living, conquering, victorious. And so any image would mislead a man and, and dishonor God. So you make no likeness. Of anything that creeps on the ground or any fish that is in the water beneath the earth, verse 18, the northern Semites had sacred animals that they worshipped and had depictions of their gods and goddesses like the animals. And take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven when you see the sun, the moon, the stars, and all the host of heaven, and you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. We have long known the fascination that the heavenly luminaries have had on mankind. Man's been fascinated with them and been driven to worship them. Babylon's worship system was largely the worship of the sun, the moon, and the stars. Zodiac. They believed that the stars exerted an influence upon the condition of a person depending on when they were born. <laughs> Something that is still very prevalent today with the modern horoscopes. But the Lord your God has taken you, verse 20, and brought you out of the iron furnace out of Egypt to be his people his inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes. He has to bring that up again like he did last time. And swore that I would not cross over the Jordan, that I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. But I must die in this land. I must not cross over the Jordan, but you shall cross over and possess that good land. You know, this really must have bugged Moses. He brings it up a lot. He was a lot more righteous than the generation that died, even this generation. And he can't even go. They get to go. It's like, you get to go. I have to stay and die here. Thanks to you. <laughs> Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God's jealous. You say, well, that's a sin. Not in its perfect sense, it's not. Jealousy is the other side of love. It's the zeal of love. Women, some of you have jealous husbands. Thank God for them. You ought to have a jealous husband. If your husband wouldn't feel jealous if somebody else tried to date you or give you a lot of attention, 
it would indicate perhaps that he doesn't love you. If I saw somebody asking my wife out on a date, I'd be, I'd be hot. I'd be jealous. She's mine. The children of Israel were God's people. They were exclusive. God was the one who made them. God was the one who delivered them from Egypt. God was the one who gave them the new land. God was the one who was taking them into it. God wants their love. It's an essential attribute of God. His love, his zeal in his love. When you beget children and grandchildren, verse 25, they have grown old in the land, act corruptly, make a carved image. Notice he doesn't say if, but when. He presupposes their failure. Now, you're going to notice something interesting here. On one hand, you have a backslidden, failing people. God predicts they would do that. And a loving God who would bring back a prodigal nation. And he talks about several stages of this downward development. When you have kids, nothing wrong with that. And grandkids, nothing wrong with that. And you have grown old in the land. The word literally in Hebrew is when you've grown stale in the land. Prosperity can act like a narcotic that sends the soul to sleep spiritually. You have kids, you have grandkids, you've been around a while, you're doing all right, and you just sort of forget God. You grow stale. God says, when that happens, you act corruptly and make a carved image in the form of anything and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to anger. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations, where the Lord your God will drive you. And there you will serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood, stone, which neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. There is a process of declension, a process of backsliding. You, you don't have a person who walks intimately with Christ one day and then the very next day is backslidden. Backsliding is a slow leak. It's not a blowout. It's a slow process. It's like a love relationship. A couple date. They love each other. He gives her flowers. Then he forgets that flowers even grow. He used to open the door for her. Now he wants to slam it on her. You know, the relationship has grown stale. We see marriages all the time. They come in for counseling. They sit in the counseling office, not like they used to with hands clasping the eyes, looking at each other in love, but sort of like this. And you look at this couple and you remember how crazy in love they were with each other and, and you start wondering, Whatever happened to that young girl whose heart raced when she heard his voice? What happened to that young man who would drive all the way across town to date her in the evening to be with her? What happened to their love? It has grown stale. It's not like they woke up one day and go, you know, I don't think I love you anymore. It's something that has gone on for a long period of time. And spiritually it can happen. Jesus said to the church of Ephesus, you have left your first love. You've left your first love. And so God says this could happen. Look at verse 29, though. But, oh, I'm glad he said that. It's a word of contrast. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. That's the good news. No matter what stage you're at, if you're in the having children stage, if you're in the having grandchildren stage, if you're in the growing stale stage, or if you're in the all-out idolatry stage, no matter where you're at, if from there, from whatever position you find yourself in tonight, short of an all-out commitment to Jesus Christ, if from that stage in your life you call on the name of the Lord and you come back to Him, you'll be restored. 
That's the good news. If from there, even your land of captivity and idolatry, whatever stage you're at, God will do his very best for you at whatever stage in your life that you let him bring you to. Some people don't settle for God's best. They disobey God and settle for God's second best or third or fourth. And they take many steps away from God and they have to suffer consequences sometimes the rest of their life. But God will do the very best he can for you at the stage you allow him to bring you into. Call upon the Lord. That's what God said to the church at Ephesus. Therefore, he said, remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. From there, seek the Lord. The word, by the way, seek means search intensely as the first principle of your life, first love relationship. When you are in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. Please look at that. Away with this nonsense that the God of the Old Testament is filled with vengeance and wrath. And the God of the New Testament is the opposite. That's balagna. Oh, excuse me, baloney it's pronounced. It's bunk. God says, I love you. This is my heart. I'm a merciful God. He will not forsake nor destroy you nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he swore to them. For ask now concerning the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth. And ask from one end of heaven to the other whether anything like this has happened or anything like it has been heard. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you heard and live? Did God ever try to go and take for himself a nation from the midst of any other nation or of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm, by great terrors, according to all the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord himself is God. There is none other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might instruct you. On earth he showed you his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. That's why Paul said when he speaks of God's plan for the nation of Israel in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Someone had this question last week. They came to me and they said, why is Israel a chosen nation? Israel disobeyed God. God's plan for Israel is over. I said, you must have ripped Romans 9, 10, and 11 out of your Bible. Because God, Paul says that God has established a covenant with them and God will fulfill it to the very end. Theirs is the covenants. Theirs is the giving of the law. Theirs is the promises that God made to the fathers. The rich heritage of the Jews. God did not negate his promises to Israel. Revelation shows us that there will be 144,000 Jews from every tribe of Israel, of the 12 tribes mentioned in Revelation. The tribe of Dan is not mentioned for perhaps some interesting reasons. I'll let you research that on your own. But God will preserve and save his people and gather them on Mount Zion in the last days. Verse 37, And because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. He brought you out of Egypt with his presence, with his mighty power. That's the heart of God. Love. God loves you. Tonight, right now, you are the object of God's love. You may not experience it. You may not feel like you're loved by God. You may even be out of fellowship with God. You may even not believe in God. He loves you. Now, you can be in a place where you don't experience the love of God. Jude said, keep yourselves in the love of God. I know a lot of people who never experience the love of God because they have an umbrella of sin or an umbrella of disbelief that sort of keeps them from feeling the effect of God's love. And, you know, it's like being out in the sun. You can have the sun shining, but it might not be shining on you because you put up an umbrella, a parasol to protect you. Keep yourself in the love of God. God loves us. 
driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you their land as an inheritance as it is this day. Therefore know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on earth beneath there is no other. You shall therefore keep his statutes, his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. You may be inclined to mark that for all time. In lieu of the modern-day question, to whom does the land of Palestine belong? Well, verses 41 to 43, he reiterates the three cities east of the Jordan River, which are called cities of refuge. Remember, there were 48 Levitical cities. And out of the 48, six of them were cities of refuge. If accidentally you killed somebody, you would rush to a city of refuge and go under trial. And if it was an accidental manslaughter, you would be acquitted. Uh, but you'd have to live there the rest of your life until the new high priest was put in office. Um, if it was intentional manslaughter, or if you killed a woman pregnant with child, or you killed the child of a pregnant woman, uh, then of course uh, uh, you could be uh, sentenced to death, and the avenger of blood, the one that was related to the one you killed, could go after you. And this is the law, verse 44, which Moses set before the children of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, the judgments which Moses spoke to the children of Israel after they came out of Egypt. On this side of Jordan, in the valley opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Sihon, or Sihon, the king of the Amorites who dwelt at Heshbon, when Moses and the children of Israel, which they defeated after they came out of Egypt, and they took possession of the land, and we read about that last time. It's a reiteration. Verse 49, And all the plain on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, the Dead Sea, and below the slopes of Pisgah. So the first speech of Moses is now over, and we will, in the next few weeks, recap some highlights of the law of Moses. Where are you in your relationship with God tonight? Are you like the church of Ephesus? Have you left your first love? Are you in the stage of letting even prosperity or busyness sort of inoculate your soul, putting it to sleep. You're not as mindful of spiritual things. It is interesting when Jesus wrote that letter, that postcard to the church of Ephesus, he said, you know, there's a lot of things you guys do right. I know your works, your labor, your toil, your patience, perseverance. You are doctrinally pure. You can't stand those who are evil. You're so apologetically astute, and yet you've left your first love. Now you think, how is that possible to be so busy working, serving Jesus Christ, being his minister, being his servant, persevering in the midst of trial, in the midst of persecution, and not be in love with Jesus. It's easier than perhaps you think. Remember, Paul said, I, though I give my body to be burned, if I don't have love, I'm nothing, presupposing it's a possibility. There's a number of reasons why people are very busy and active in their life, even in Christian service, apart from being motivated by the love of God. Number one, the motivation can be guilt. I see other people serving. I feel guilty that I'm not. Therefore, I will do it to alleviate the guilt. It's not love for Christ. It's love for self. Others sense that they have a gift from God and they're so fulfilled whenever they exercise it. That's a good motivation. We should be fulfilled in whatever God has called us to do. But that's not the motivation. Because sometimes you will exercise your gift and calling and it's not easy to do it. You'll be called upon to do some difficult things and unless you are motivated and you do it because I love Him, you'll stop short of obedience.
Martha was so busy serving. Mary was busy sitting, and Martha got angry that Mary was sitting and not serving. As I've heard even some complaints from time to time around here. How come some of these people don't get involved in this ministry that is so obviously in desperate need? I think you ought to make some announcements. Make them feel guilty. I could. Guilt is a powerful motivator. It's not the highest. And so, whatever stage you find yourself in tonight, maybe totally apart from God, maybe you've just left that motivating love for him. Whatever your stage, if from there you turn one step back, you may have taken one step, two steps, 135 and a half steps. It's one step back. It's turning to him. If from there, he'll listen. He'll receive you. He'll restore you. That's his heart. Father, we thank you tonight for the lessons in your word, the lessons that Moses, this great man of God, this great prophet of Israel, this great patriarch of the covenant of the law, living so long, seeing so much, speaking to another generation, the wisdom of God. We take it to heart tonight. Lord, your heart is that we might live and possess, that we might enjoy all that you have for us. And you predicted failure, and you predicted also mercy. And some of us tonight really need to experience your mercy because we admit we failed. And this is the place to admit it, the church. This is not a place for perfect people. It's a hospital for sinners. And tonight, Lord, whatever stage we're at, if we're short of that intimacy with you, the motivation of love for you, we ask you, Father, to receive us, to forgive us. And we turn back to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. 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 Let's stand.